Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. My name is Amit Paul, and uh, today I get to speak with a fellow member of the Legacy 17 network, uh, who we only spoke once, but there was so much resonance in that conversation that it feels like we've spoken, like, I feel like I know you. So welcome to the podcast, Marco Valente. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. It's really good, it's good to have to you. And um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the normal first question, but I think one thing that I want to put in the field between us to um, circle on today at one, some point or the other is you said something really, really interesting around a paradox of evidence-based decision-making in our uh, pre-call. And, and that's something that I want to come back to because I thought I'd never thought about it that clearly before. But of course, it's like that. Um, but first, uh, I'll ask the, the light and easy, wonderful question <laughs> that I normally ask. Um, who are you, Marco Valente? You've seen this reaction from many others before, right? That people are off, caught off guard, like, who are you? It's such a, a big question, and existential <laughs> question. Um, not terrible at all. Um, in... Um, one of my one of the mentors in complexity theory is uh, Dave Snowden um, of the Kinevin framework fame. He says that um, from the human side of complexity, it's good to assume that people have multiple identities, and when you, uh, it's good to take that into account that people have like multiple identities, and so. It's always a bit reductive to say, who am I? Like, you know, today I'll tell you this and it's only one slice of the whole complexity of me. And then tomorrow we play chess and I tell you, who am I when I play board games? And then the day after I tell you, oh, I'm actually very competitive around board games. So uh, let's start from one slice. Um, I can look into uh, the picture of uh, who I am. Um, I have always been a curious learner of how the world works and with a passion and a value-driven kind of impulse to make it better. Uh, but I've often had this desire to get to understand the world first. Because what if I try to make the world better, but I don't understand the world? And that will circle back to the evidence-based decision-making uh, conversation that we will have today. So curious learner about the world. I've been from early on aware of how uncertain our knowledge of the world is. And so probably that is one of the red threads uh, that have been following me for a while. And, uh, and then the ethical stance is, well, once we understand the world, can we make it better? But that raises even more questions. Well, better for whom? And like, that's a value judgment for me, but do other people agree? So that has led me to do uh, sustainability science studies and, uh, and an, an, an attempt to understand the world through the lens of complexity theories. And then the value stance of how, who do we make it better for um, has led me to work with facilitation and uh, how do we gather the intelligence of the many and how do we gather multiple perspectives? Because I can be very opinionated on things, but at the same time, I know that I don't hold uh, the answers myself. So curious in understanding the world, knowing that the world is hard to understand, trying to make it better, and I've been going down rabbit holes into that. And, um, and my work as a facilitator is trying to bring people together to have shared the definitions of what the world uh, what the world looks like and what would it look like to make it better. Oh, okay. That's and that's only one slice. slice. Of that's course, we can slice. take many, There's a many. lot of layers to that slice already. <laughs> I've prepared for this question because you always ask that question first thing to all your yeah. uh, guests. Yeah. So I've been... I'm curious though, because you said that you um, realized at an early stage that the world is not so easy to... It's not so easy. I can't remember exactly the words, but like that, that's not so easy to to know mm -hmm. to know what's in the world, so to say. Yeah. Um, yes. How did you come to that realization? Like, I have to thank my professors at the university because I was studying social science. I was studying communication and social science in Italy back in the early two thousands when we were young, um, and um, 
they came at it from a research methodology perspective. So they were trying to understand sociology from, you know, how do you build a good survey or how do you develop reliable indicators and all of that? Like, how do you do research methodology for social science? And because sociology had has had like a, a complex of inferiority over the last 200 years, that it's not a real science, Early in the day, like in the 1800s, like Auguste Comte and then Emile Durkheim, they started by modeling, okay, we have to be rigorous. And they started by modeling sociology from the models of physics. So we have to break down society and a person is an atom. And of course, that didn't work, right? But at least the attempt was, okay, what would it look like to have rigorous studies about society? And so paradoxically, what happened was that my social science studies were informed by these mentors who were really strong about epistemology and how do we get to know the world and what our biases, what our limits or knowledge are. So I essentially studied, you know, philosophy of science and how do we understand the world and what are the limits of our knowledge. And I realized that, you know, some people in sociology could actually be even stronger on those epistemic bases than, you know, people who study physics and they say, well, of course my method is correct. Well, Mm -hmm. actually, most often it is. I mean, physics is kind of a safe bet because it's a strong kind of established science, but there are many other sciences where people probably don't explore as deeply the limits of their knowledge. Uh, You know, how can you rely on this statistical finding that you have? Um, Statistics is another one that is would be uh, <laughs> interesting to uh, take a deep dive into uh, because there is so much. Yeah, there is so much to say, let's say. Uh, there's so much good there, but also there is so much uh, turbulence happening now with the replication crisis. Can we take like a yeah. one minute dive t- tangent mm-hmm. on the, the replication crisis? I don't know if yeah. you heard of this, but essentially the replication crisis is this whole thing that happened in the last 15, 20 years when 2006, I believe, Ioannidis argued most research findings are likely to be false because the margin of error, um, the fact that you publish positive results, the results that you're aiming for, uh, within a certain p-value, within a certain I probability to explain what the p-value is. uh, Well, it's complex even to explain that. And then what if there is a publication bias? What if the studies have not been replicated? And what if uh, it doesn't stand the scrutiny of replicating the studies with more robust kind of statistical uh, strength? And so uh, we can publish a lot of things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we know for sure if those things are true. So that's a one-minute regression on the uh, replication bias. And so that's important because in social science, we should take things with a grain of salt. And then to add to that, another thing that I'm really passionate about is the complexity, which means when you put a lot of variables together, how do you even know that A causes B while there are so many more variables? So we can't even know for sure the link between cause and effect in an isolated system if you link A and B assuming that the rest of the world is outside, which is not true. Uh, So that's a fascinating um, thing to think about and has very practical consequences because what if you design intervention in the world on the assumption that this leads to that? I think we talked about complexity and the fact that all the variables are together in in an earlier conversation that you and I had. Yeah, and... and Yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, to, to, in a way, isn't that exactly the, or like one of the, I shouldn't say the, but one of the main um, challenges that we have today when we design interventions mm-hmm. in general is that we, there, there are, yes. there is this assumption in there that, you know, like, said there's, like, said there's part of us, like everything else is the same. Like, and, you know. Right. And, and, right. and also in the replication crisis, I don't, I haven't, I, I just know that it's there. And I know that the social sciences is taking a big blow from it because a lot of the previous mm. research has been, let's say, debunked because it wasn't repeatable. And then one would also yes. wonder then if you take the systemic perspective and think about the context 
um, and the changing context mm -hmm. and, and how things evolve, have evolved or changed, just, you know, uh, that, that there are differences and uncontrolled for differences, then um, is it even relevant to think about it as a, something that should be rep rep absolutely. Rep replicatable, if you will. Right, absolutely. Which then leads us to the question of what is the value of, like, what, what can we trust from that science and and having a very strong stance of I really believe that we need science, we need more science, not less, to face the world's challenges. But then what of this can be trusted and how do we deal with the uncertainty of our findings? That's fun. Mm -hmm. And then there's the practical question of what do we do with that? Because we still have to navigate a world that we don't understand. That's interesting. Because I think, I mean, to me, it, it kind of, it approaches the statement of like, you know, we have, a, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, like that type of approach. Mm -hmm. And then with a lot of these systemic, mm -hmm. I think, at least for me, like a lot of these systemic things, it's almost like I'll, you know, I, I, I will see it when I believe it. It's the opposite. Like, it's almost like you have to have some mm -hmm. sort of faith or, or trust. There's a leap somewhere um, that you start looking at the world in a specific way, and then you will start seeing these connections. Like, you will be able to start, if you, you have to squint a little bit in order to see the relationships. Um, mm. Say more. Are you saying, Amit, that it would be, if you start from, if you start from a, a certain kind of preconception that you have or a certain belief that you have, then you will be able to see something out there. So we kind of flip the... See, this is what I used to think. Like when, when I, there was, there was like a leap that I had to do when I was getting into the systemic perspective, which is very close sometimes to the sort of the mm. more esoteric perspective of like everything is connected. There's like all of the interdependencies and so forth. Mm. Um, and so I felt in the beginning that it was very hard to perceive those relationships. Um, mm, and... And so at some point I just had to decide like, I, okay, I believe that everything is interdependent. I believe that there are relationships and I mm. believe that there are threads going out in all of these things. And then I started to be able to see it. And so like for me in the, initially I was like, it's, I, I went from sort of, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it to mm. I'll, I, you know, I'll see it. No, because I see I it now it. because I believe in and it. And then yeah. after that, it's felt like I've been coming into, coming to terms with that type of worldview. And it's, it's felt more like, rather than it's a, a question of belief, it's a more of a, a deprogramming of another worldview. Like it's this sort of deconstructive, mm -hmm. um, everything is separate, like object, objective, um, if you will, worldview. Uh, and so coming into relationship with thing and also, things and also sort of incorporating my perception into how I see the world mm -hmm. and you know, with as much rigor as I can. Um, muster <laughs> but but uh, and, and so there's something there i don't know if you want to if you get like yeah. i see i think i see what you mean what is really fascinating about what you say amit is that to me there is also uh, well it opens up many threads this one uh there is also a question of epistemology around you know how do we get to see the world through which lens so for example, the, the linear worldview, which we're like so embedded in, and it's kind of the water that we're swimming in, is this notion of, you know, a uh, link between cause and effect, and it's a linear kind of, uh, and it's a linear link between one cause and one effect. And, uh, and it's brought us so much knowledge and wisdom and so much understanding of the world. And, uh, and I, I really believe, for example, for one thing, I believe that there's so much that we can see about the world with that. And at the same time, so my own under, my own coming of age to the systems view and the complexity view was that I believe the complexity view of the world because I couldn't see anything else with a mm -hmm. linear view. Like it just hits a wall, it hits a ceiling where I cannot understand more of the world uh, because there is something that the linear mechanistic view of life just uh, hides from you. You, you cannot see more of the world with that. And so what else becomes possible when you look at it from a perspective of systems thinking and complexity theories and a, a whole um, kind of an integrated view that takes into account unpredictability and complexity and the fact that everything is inter interrelated. Mm. 
And then the other question is, how do we get to know it? Do we rely only on our uh, senses? Do we rely only on our scientific worldview? That's a, that's another question that to me is really fascinating uh, because there is a lot that the we've come to an assumption that you can only believe it if you see it, if you have experimental data about it, if you have evidence, if you have this yeah. and if you have that. And we know that that's not true. We intuitively know, like, uh, we know that we, we know through our bodies, we know through our minds, through our intuition. I know I should tread carefully there because there is also a lot of things that we don't know that could be, like, you know, very weak science and ungrounded and, you know, uh, people making bigger claims than what they can. But, but we know that there is more to the world that we can understand. Um, and if we cannot know it through the lens of science, it doesn't mean that we will never know it. Uh, it's possible that it's accessible to us in other ways that we haven't figured out yet. So uh, there is also like an openness to there are many other ways in which I guess we can know the world. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And then that's, that's, I mean, resonates with what I feel like I've discovered. There's more to it. And mm -hmm. There's so much yeah. hope there as well, because I think this is a nice bridge into the, the mm. into this evidence-based decision-making uh, conversation. But mm. but there's so much hope. I just wanted to kind of pause and say that it's like, at least to me, ten years ago, or well, a little bit more maybe now, like fifteen years ago, it felt like the world was done, like finished, like it was like it was it was closed, mm -hmm. like everything had been discovered. All of the great companies had been been you know built and and the, all the you know inventions had been and then somewhere around with the two thousand and eight crisis when there was so many things because I was in in the business field and so I was reading that but there were so many things there that really shook up the basics of how we perceived the world like what we had decided the world would work like and mm -hmm. put into equations and so that you could then make money off of them like you know in in, in the financial services industry for instance. And to me, that opened everything up. And so that opening up is really exciting because it means that, and especially with the systems view, it means that there is still, there's this perspective that what I do matters. You know, it, it, it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be a large claim necessarily, but it does matter. Mm -hmm. On some level, it matters, you know, and maybe you're the butterfly that creates the storm, mm -hmm. but, but maybe you're just the butterfly, you know, it doesn't matter, but it, but it matters. Like there is a, there's a shift possible somewhere uh, as a result of it. And what I hear from you is also something about the human agency, right? That the world feels, if the world to you felt a bit more finished before the financial crisis, and now it feels that what I personally do matters. And even if I'm the butterfly, still, I don't know the exact um, outcomes of my actions, but I know that my actions matter. Um, which to me is really fascinating because it taps into this whole notion of how much agency do we have in complexity because the links between cause and effect is obscure, so we don't exactly yeah. know. And people in the sustainability field and people in social activism, social movements have been trying to create these theories of change and say, you know, if I do this, this will happen. In yeah. reality, we don't know. We have some guesses, but but I guess that's part of the fascination of... Uh, it's probably a good thing that we don't know because if we knew, then a billionaire could just hijack the whole process and say, "Well, I know how change happens. I'm going to make change the way I want." But, and but that's interesting because then, then I mean, that, that let's just take another detour around like the the first and second order and third order effects of things, like you know, as, as mm -hmm. in terms of because I, I perceive the world at the moment a, a lot of the thinking, the the linear thinking that we were thinking is reading leading to a lot of direct action. Mm -hmm. Like a, a lot of sort of direct opposition or like direct protest or like, and, mm -hmm. and that is how we believe that we will change the world. And, and um, I don't know, how do you see that? Like, how? Oh, direct as in people protest, people campaign for something, people advocate for something, and then they will believe that from here, from there, something right. specific. Will then happen. there's the ban and then the problem's mm -hmm. fixed. Like, oh, problem solved, you know, I can go home and, and feel good about it. And, and then, you know, in, in, in my yeah. old age, I will be able to tell my grandkids as I'm dying, I'll be like, this is what this I is did. This is what I done. I was Martin Luther King, you know, this is yeah. Rosa Parks. I didn't sit down on the bus mm -hmm. in Rosa Parks, hence, hence this happened, like linear, mm -hmm. which is, you know, 
but but how do you how do you uh, see that? I I don't know how the world works, and I don't know how change happens. Um, what I hear from you is really fascinating, and is about first order and second order and, and third order effects. Um, to me, around theory of change, one of the most important things is um, coming back to the fact that, you know, I had this fascination in my 20s about the fact that I'm not, I don't clearly understand how the world works. One thing that I can prize very much is learning. So if I can do something, even direct actions, which I, I don't dismiss as, you know, necessarily bad, but even if I did direct actions, what I hear from you about, you know, I do direct action and then I hope that something will happen. One of the things that I find most helpful personally in my practice is at least, can I get a loop of learning from here's what I've done. I hope that something would happen. It didn't happen or it happened, but in a different way. Can I learn something about the theory that I used to have about the world? Because at least I'm trying to learn a couple of things from how, about how the world works. And about how my assumptions about the world were wrong, because they're always wrong. But at least if I can have a loop of learning, then I can have a bit of humility about, oh, I really thought that, you know, this was the solution to the world's problems. And I invested five years of my life in it and something happened or something didn't happen or something happened in spite of me or something happened because of me. But to me, the loop of learning, actually something that I would like to explore a bit more if you have energy for this, but the loop of learning is probably one of the most fundamental things that I think holds some promise. Um, because if we can learn something from it, at least we can come to grips also with our own assumptions about the world. And how do you, the learning and the agency, like how do they relate? I haven't thought about it. Um, see if this helps. So one of the ways in which I look at learning is, um, the notion of, um, kind and wicked learning environments. So, um, you, you have a career as a musician, so you you play an instrument. Everybody can relate to this, um, uh, example. When you play an instrument, you have a learning environment in which you have immediate feedback mm. from experience. You play a wrong note it immediately sounds wrong. Like it gives you an immediate feedback. You know what is going not so well and you can quickly learn from it and you can course correct and you can better, you can get better at it. So Emre Soyer calls them, calls them like kind learning environments. The, the space is kind to you because even if you don't master it, it gives you reliable information about what you're not doing well and mm -hmm. how to course correct and how to learn and get better. A wicked learning environment is one where if you're not good at it, you're not reliably learning from experience. CEO of the organization, um, the organization performs really well. The CEO is a toxic person, uh, very bad to their employees and uh, very unskilled at predicting the market. The market is going up because the, the whole tide is going up. So the company is going well in spite of his work, mm. not because of him. But he thinks, oh, my God, I saved the company because, you know, we were on a low mm. and now we're on a high. It's like, actually, no, you don't have skills. But the environment is not teaching him the right lessons from experience. Investors have the same, you know, a lot of investors do well or not well just because of pure luck. So they, they don't really get to learn, you know, who is really skilled at this and who is not. And to me, the fascinating thing about complexity is that it's so obscure to us. Like now today, as we're recording this in Malmö, is really foggy. So I cannot see more than like 200 meters from, from my window because of a thick fog. And to me, it's such a beautiful metaphor of the fact that we cannot see well through the fog. And how do we at least learn a little more ways in which we can navigate the fog and at least learn some things from experience, which I think holds a bit of promise. So how, good, how do we make these learning environments a little bit kinder to us so that we can learn in a reliable way from experience? Acknowledging that there's so much that we don't know still. So am I... I'm just trying to see if I, if I follow. But, but so it, the... In the wicked case, there is 
uh, an unreliable connection between my what I do, what my input is uh, into the into the model, and what mm. the outcome is. Um, and so that makes it hard for me to know when I was doing well and when I was doing less well. Yes. And yes. And so, but I did, I'm not I'm not quite sure. I follow. Like, what do we? What do you? From the way you think about it, like, what do you propose mm. that one? does in order to um make it kinder like to to what is the that is a big question and i have some ideas i'm not entirely sure but um that is a really good question one of the things that i'm trying to do is to make many of the assumptions that we mm. have explicit just as a way to try and learn from experience so for example going back to the example that we spoke about five minutes ago around um, what kind of direct action you want to do to do something good. And then you feel good if things go well. Um, Can I try and name all the assumptions that I have around I'm doing this because I believe that this is the situation, my action will result in this and that. So for example, and I'm looking behind me, I don't know if the video is recorded as well. I have a journal. It's a journal of decision-making. When I make major decisions, I write down um, October 31st, 2022. Here is a big decision that I'm making about my relationships or about buying something or about, you know, donating to this cause. This is the information that I had today. This is what I believe would happen. To the best of my knowledge, I'm deciding this. I hope that this will happen. I know I will be wrong. But I'm writing down, here's the decision that I'm making today. And then six months later, to laugh at myself, I review the journal and I look at, you know, here are all the decisions that I made. That's wonderful. Because, I mean, and I can, yeah. And and just because what I'm hearing from you there is that in order, by making it fixed, uh, documenting it, um, there is no, there's less room for you to actually, um, you know, make up stuff later. And say like, oh, I knew, or I didn't, or like, you know, change the story. Like <laughs> the little that I know about cognitive biases, and you, you probably know more than more more than me about this. But people make up all sorts of stories in Stockholm when they put the pollution charge. People were opposed to it, and the pollution charge worked really well. And then you interviewed people like two years later, and people said, I've always yeah. <laughs> supported this. And it's so like, actually, no, like we had 80% of people saying no, they were against. And now we have 80% of people two years later who say that I've always supported it. The numbers yeah. just don't yeah. match. <laughs> so we create yeah. all sorts of stories, right? Yeah, exactly. Stories that are convenient to us. Uh, so your fixed point uh, uh, comment is actually quite quite apt because yes, uh, we can create all sorts of stories to say, I always thought that I always believed that actually that's not true. Because the, And then the other thing is, because I hear a lot of, I'm speaking to a lot of people that are very much involved in the blockchain technology. Um, and one of the mm-hmm. arguments that I've, or like one of the sales arguments for, for like blockchain technology has been that the blocks are immutable. You can't change them after the fact. So it means that um, mm-hmm. in one way, the history is being written um, as it's happening. And so there's been an argument that like, oh, it's really great because now, you know, nobody can change history. And I'm like, well, what do you write in the blocks? Like, come on, like how much, uh, how much of a story, like, because it comes back to this, like what's data dependent? Like what is the type of data that we are, we are recording versus how do we contextualize that data? And, and if we're going to contextualize mm. everything into the block, I mean, which is, would be necessary then, I don't know. You know, and and also mm. this, of course, it's a nice mm. idea to think that um, now now we have objective data, and so that means that it's not no longer the winners that are writing the history, always, so to say. Like, and mm. and in one way, fine, you know, I can I can understand that. But then at the same time, like whose whose objective data are we encoding at the moment? You know, what what who decided mm. which stuff goes into the block and like what is documented and, and, and what are the words that are there, you know, because mm. if those are supposed to be and all encompassing and like we're taking all the views and like it comes back to your initial question about sort of better, you know, I want to do better, better for whom? Mm. Like, what does it mean? Like, it's not, it's a really complicated and complex and all of it, you know, chaotic almost question uh, to try to deal with um, seriously. 
and and if we disregard it by saying, okay, now we have the data, and then we stop looking, that to me is scary. That's a scary development. Because mm. um, yeah. it is something around the epistemic humility that you're holding that I find deeply, deeply attractive. Yes. Um, Thank you. It's validating to hear that because I don't normally get too much interest when I talk about epistemic humility. <laughs> Usually people are fascinated by other things like, oh, complexity, decisions and uncertainty. But to me, it's fundamental to the way in which I look at the world. And even from a, a strong belief, I, I actually make a strong claim. I believe that we need that at the level of teams navigating complexity together because uh, there is so much that we don't know about the world. Um, you know, I think we will gather a lot, like we would win a lot by holding the assumption that we don't know the world. Yeah, there's that. Yeah. And working from there. Like, there's two quotes. Like one is the a, a problem well described is half solved. I can't remember who said that, but somebody said that. And mm -hmm. then it's the Einstein yeah. thing of like, if I had an hour to solve the problem, I would spend 55 minutes to, to understand the problem. Like, uh, and... Um, but there's something you said initially that caught my attention because what I what I heard you speak to a little bit in your work, it it sounded like, and this might have been just a, in, like something that I misheard, but it sounded like you had been focused on this alignment process almost, like in in teams or or in individuals even internally, like how can we align uh, and, and come together around a specific world to cohere around something. Um, mm. I was wondering if you wanted to speak more to that because that's that's a question that's extremely alive to me right now as there are so many initiatives that are okay. being started and everybody wants mm. to do better and, and we're close but we're mm. not the same and so like how do we kind of piece mm. these different things together? Cohere uh, is a wonderful uh, word. Uh, so let me give you a couple of examples. So the also I, I don't know uh, your audience, your listeners, but uh, to to give some very concrete ideas about the work that I do, uh, because I know I can sound very philosophical and very up in the clouds. So I work as a facilitator. I work with a consulting company, Cultivating Leadership, and some of the work that we do is um, building skills in teams and individuals to navigate complexity. The facilitation work is super concrete, and at the same time, there are many deep philosophical aspects behind. Uh, like, how do we get people to work on intractable, complex problems together? How do we make, how do we help them through the processes of conversations that they normally have to make progress on some, you know, big challenges that they have? Now, the question of coherence, how do you get people together to cohere? And the answer is always context dependent, which is something that, you know, when I taught at the university, frustrated my students, what do you mean the answer? Just give me an answer. Why is it always context dependent? So, but it, it is truthfully in complexity, the answer is really always context dependent. If you need a team to cohere because they belong to the same organization, they have to align on here is our strategic direction, for example. Uh, then you need a stronger sense of alignment, for example, compared to a community of, I don't know, grassroots initiatives that are attempting to solve a certain problem through different, um, I don't know, pathways, for instance. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, coherence within coherence, a lot of diversity within coherence. Um, I don't know if you know the open space technology. A bit, yeah as a facilitation tool. Um, I love the open space as a way to get people to tackle a really complex challenge together. And you give them, in complexity speak, you give them like minimum specifications. You give them a minimum set of rules. And from these rules, these rules are really helping people to self-organize and get the best of all ideas in the room. And so in that sense, when you talk about, you know, what is the coherence that you need for people to tackle a complex problem through a diversity of initiatives, um, liberating structures um, has come up with this notion of minimum specifications. I'm a huge fan of that. And meaning, what is the minimum set of rules and boundaries that are liberating? So it's not a rule saying you cannot do that, you cannot do that, but it's a minimum list of rules that says 
do that that is aligned with this and this and this, like minimum principles or minimum specifications. And they're meant to be the shortest list possible so that it allows self-organized initiative. And I love that because uh, you have to make the list as short as possible, but not shorter. You have to put boundaries in place. So for example, in our organization, it's a collective of 80 consultants. So we know what the boundaries are, like this and this and this, you know, these are the, sh- these are the edges of the box and outside of that we cannot do. Uh, and then within, within those constraints, you have creativity. You have the minimum specifications of follow these three principles and go do good work. And, but what it does is that it liberates human creativity and it liberate, it creates the preconditions for um, coherent self-organization to happen. And so that is something that I love about the open space, because with the open space, what you do is you invite people to an event, a conference, a team meeting. You, you convene people around a question. And the question in complexity speak can be seen as an attractor, like something that gathers people's energy, catalyzes people's energy and say, okay, here's a convening question. People come up with their own initiatives as ways to address that question and get the room kind of self-organized around, around that with self-organized topics as initiatives. Mm. Yeah. And then you're, you're, you have your own interest to to direct you kind of so you you get pulled and, and you get to move and, yeah. and you can put something out and then if yes. nobody else comes then you are going to have to reconsider that yes um, or, or do it yourself yes <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah yeah and then and then from a complexity perspective also what i like about a model as simple as the open space a technique as simple as the open space is that you really go with the energy in the room because meaning as um People come up with their own initiatives. You can also get to see what the system has energy for right now. As you said, you know, like if you come up with your own topic and nobody comes, well, that's information about the state of the system right now. Like I was really passionate about holding a session on philosophy of science and nobody came. (laughs) Or I was really passionate about, can we try this initiative? And then you get half of the room coming to your session instead. And it's one of the simple ways to gauge um, where is the human energy in the system at at this particular point in time? Yeah, that's that's interesting because then all of a sudden you're also getting information from the failures, so to say. So if you you decide it in a particular way, so you Absolutely. can actually whatever happens, you will you're back in your learning loop, yes. if you will. And so you next time, absolutely, you can tweak if you want to. Yeah. I mean, if you have if you have enough perception to, or you just really disappointed and crashed that nobody came and then it's difficult yeah. uh, until you process that emotion. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. And I really love that, what you're saying about, you know, learning from the failures, because to me that really goes back to the notion of making the learning environment a bit kinder to you, like the notion of learning from the failures, uh, because you can use those not as failure. Well, use those not to process them as failures because, you know, they can be bruising, my ego for sure, but that is data points about, okay, this is interesting. This is what I thought the system would have energy for. And this is what I'm noticing that the system seems to be ready to talk about or do right now. So you can get a, another learning loop from, uh, from the data that you get. It's interesting. And then, and then of course, in a way, but that's part of it, right? So like if even if you don't like certain biases of the current moment, like for me, I have an, I take a little bit mm-hmm. of an issue with the fact that we're moving so fast with everything, that everything is about speed and scale. This uh-huh. is a, a topic of a concern for me because I think that certain things maybe shouldn't nice. be scaled. And, and then of course you hear all these like sort of really smart people talk about sort of the existential risk of, for instance, AI or, or these things that once you've put them out into the world, they're going to mm-hmm. be scaling themselves um, basically. And so you better get it right. And like, when have we ever gotten anything yes. right um, on the first, like it's not, I don't know what I wanted to say with that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like, there's, um, you, you have to relate to that. Like, do you have to relate to the bias of the current mm-hmm. moment? That's what you're saying. Like that's, that is the, that's part of the open space. Like that's, that's where the information comes. It could be, and, and you can also then perhaps take a look at the different levels of, 
is it the thing that I'm actually doing, the core of the thing, the intention that I am, which is, you know, that's if, if I need to test that. Can I package that in a different way at the next open space and see if more people show up? Uh, mm -hmm. Or is it, you know, other levels? Is it just a communication or is it actually the core of the thing? And then you have to like also sort of look at those particular levels or, or of, of your initiative. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if that... And what I'm hearing from you as well is also this notion of pace. Like, is the open space, for example, catering for a fast pace? Or how can we make sure that the conversation is slow enough, slow with a positive mm -hmm. kind of connotation, slow enough that we can get to talk about risks, existential risks? Are we moving at the right pace for the kind of depth that the conversation requires? Uh, because that's an important topic too, because... Uh, um, with complexity, one of the things, and this might be something that you have interest for, but with complexity, one of the main concerns that I have is that the risks may grow proportionally to the complexity mm -hmm. of the problem, and, and our perception of the risks may not be, may not mm -hmm. be up to speed with uh, uh, the type of problems that we have. I mean, you mentioned AI. I know nothing about AI, so I don't have enough competence to talk about it cogently, but, but I come from a sustainability science perspective, so I know that there are, you know, we're facing big risks like planetary boundaries is probably the first one that comes to mind. And, um, and if I look at that from the perspective of uncertainty and how much we don't know, and we don't know how much the solutions that we're trying to put in place will work or will create side effects or unwanted consequences that nobody has thought about, can we pause the conversation and try to slow down the pace of the conversation so that the group can also gauge um, uh, risks, for example? Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. No, I don't know if this is something that you have energy it's, for. It's, given it's the, interesting, given what, what, I, what I like, the sentence that popped up in my head when you said that is like, we are certain about the risks that we see, but the risks, they, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not certain about a specific outcome, but it's, it's we're certain about the risk of a specific outcome. And, and it's there's mm -hmm. it's one step removed, and of course, like the people that are saying that, oh, but it's not. Um, you know, there's no, there's no climate change. Like there's no human made climate change. We don't care about that stuff. Um, uh, they usually say that, how can we know? Like, it's so complex. Like it's, it's, it's not possible. Like that it's a common argument, right. but in a way, you know, we're, we're certain right. about the risks of, of certain outcomes in a way. And, and of course there's a probability there and it could fall out on the worst side or it could fall out on the slightly better side and other things could influence. And we don't know if there are other loops that are going to be sort of impeding or, or intervening into the loops uh, of, of ca mm -hmm. cascading loops that we are seeing at the moment. And so, of course, it's, it's tricky, but there is a, I don't know, I hadn't thought about it in that way uh, before, that there is, I mean, there is a certain, and, and of, of course, to keep people, but that's, that's kind of the thing. It's like this, the, the house is burning down analogy that Greta Thunberg has, has sort of put in front of us very saliently. And I, on one end, I'm like, yes, that's great. It's exactly the way that we need to to uh, engage. That's that's the urgency that we need to engage in learning about these things with. Uh, mm -hmm. Yet, what I've been sensing is that it's not the urgency in which we need to solve problems with. Like it's it's the learning that needs to be really urgent. It's the understanding and the like increasing right. our conceptual understanding of these things and trying to become better at, at grasping these things. That's, that's where the real urgency lies. However, if we are stumbling around the way that we've done over the past 200 years and just kind of implement solutions blindly um, without any just kind of mm. with the action bias of saying like, as long as I do something, it's great. You know, this, we, we yeah. can't afford that. In, and, and you see it in the solar in wind industry or you see it in, in a lot of the green technology. Like what is the cost on the environment on the fact that we're implementing these technologies so fast. And some of them are, you know, you're buying the cheapest solar cell and it works for five years. And then what? Where, where, did, the, where did the mined materials come from and so forth? Like, I, I love what you're saying because that highlights one of the, I, I'm seeing like paradoxes everywhere with complexity. I'm seeing like paradoxes, dilemmas, unsolvable kind of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, double binds. And one of them is we need to act fast on some urgent problems. And we need to learn fast 
and complex solutions kind of resist the scaling or they really need a lot of attention and thought uh, before you scale them up. And it's it's one of the biggest paradoxes. And, and in sustainability, this becomes so evident, especially on the topics where we don't know much about, you know, what is that we can safely scale fast, give and the, the urgency is coming from the urgency of the challenge, but at the same time, what is that we we can safely do, and what is that we can what is that we need to fast like to learn about, learn from at speed? Um, and it's a paradox. It, it's it's a double bind, really, because uh, also, you know, acting slow is not an option, and acting fast is coming with some risks at the same time. And I guess it goes back to your point about, you know, can we commit to learn really fast? Um, And what is the nature of scalable solution going to look like on these challenges? Uh, Because we need a level of scaling, but at the same time, we have to be aware that, you know, scaling can come with its own problems and with its own side effects as well. And so it kind of comes back to the replication crisis almost. Like because of, mm-hmm. of we are we're doing things in complex systems where we don't know all the variables, and so um, so maybe you know I, I know that like Douglas Rushkoff, who I love to listen to, uh, he he speaks a lot about let's not scale. We we don't need to scale. We need to replicate, replicate and modify. That's fine, but we don't need to scale. You know, it's like uh, what does he mean as the difference between a replicate and scale? He means to he means it to be locally driven. So it means. That as you are, when you Mm -hmm. promote an intervention in a new context, Mm -hmm. then people on the ground are promoting this intervention because they have decided and feel that this is relevant to them and they're doing it um, to the best of their ability, given their context. They're taking into account the, you're not just imposing from the outside, like, hey, everybody should use whatever technology it is. Like the Soviet kind of five-year plan, like here's what every municipality is going to do versus coming from the context. It's relevant, has energy in the context, in the local context. And so so then you can take ideas and and steal them, (laughs) proudly steal them, but but transparently steal them. And, and, you know, if you need to pay something or or do something or license, whatever, then do that. But but it's not about Mm -hmm. somebody from the outside coming in to fix something. It's not about, I think we said... um, in the in the pre-call, we said something about like the, the the paradigm of like I want other people to do this thing that I've decided, you know. And then you yourself are still hooked on your uh, your meat and your you know gasoline cars and, and all of that stuff. But other people should do differently, mm-hmm. you know. It's, it's the, in the business of solving the problem over there versus in the business of solving the problem right here, yeah. The problem that I really know, and, and yeah. then you're like a lot of, yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Also, the the other people should change paradox. I think people have not done the math when people... So this is a strong assumption that I have. I need to back this up with evidence. But people have not done the math, I believe, when you count how many people are are basing their plans on the assumption that you should change because there are so many competing interests, like the meat industry is planning their business plans on the assumption that you should eat more meat. The vegetarians are planning their success on the assumption that you should eat less meat. And then the sugar industry is planning based on the assumption that you should quit sugar, that you should double your intake of sugar altogether. And the diet is basically saying, well, actually you should cut a lot of that. And the diabetes industry is basically, well, the diabetes prevention industry is saying, well, God forbid, like people should not drink as much sugary drinks as they do. And, and, and we're in the midst of these competing interests and people, I don't think people understand how much of these plans are conflicting. Uh, and everybody is going with multiple assumptions about how people should change. And there are multiple plans that are opposing each other. Of course, I have strong opinions about, you know, a healthier <laughs> life and, <laughs> and whatnot. And, uh, and more vegetarian and more um, um, carbon, uh, lower carbon emissions based. But yeah, but that's an interesting one to ponder about because uh, from a complexity and systems perspective, you also have to look at how much we're committing our industries to things like five years down the line, 10 years down the line. And that could be a major enabler or, resist, or a 
an impediment to change. I don't know if you remember uh, in 2012, uh, um, this thinking that I'm, that I'm showing here is, um, was exemplified by Billy McKibben in 2012 when he was saying, this is how much carbon we have that we can mm-hmm. spend as a society. And he was looking at the carbon budget of the seven, I believe, seven major oil companies. Their business plans were based on the assumption that we would use mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. more carbon. Yeah. And they already had plans to sell it and who to give it to. And, and he was basically saying, well, this is not a business plan that matches the, the demands that we have. Like We cannot live on a habitable planet based on these business plans, so we should do something about it. And that could be like a resistance to cha- a structural resistance to change that you may face when you try to uh, when you try to uh, yeah, we spend very little time looking at the at the um, limits or like the the impediments or the boundaries, even if you like yes yeah but so, I mean now it's actually really time to come into the evidence-based decision making because I think that's Yes. Just, I don't have a good formulated question about it, but, but sure. Talk about it, please. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So, uh, good. Uh, where do we, where do we start? So, um, okay. Let's start where this may sound familiar and, uh, where this makes a lot of sense and everybody would nod the notion that you want to make some decisions about future actions, future strategies for doing something good in the world, whether it's your company, whether it's your municipality, whether it's um, governments, whether it's environmental policies. The notion is you should base your you should base your decisions on sound evidence, and only on sound evidence can you make good decisions. That makes a ton of sense. Absolutely a ton of sense. And I'm not saying anything against it because, you know, obviously we want to follow the best available science. The trouble with evidence-based decision-making is one, one of the limitations, I don't want to call it trouble, is that in the age of complexity, there is so much that we don't know yet that to make a decision based on evidence leaves you with the assumption that you can only make a decision once you have the evidence. If we were to make a decision on uh, the worst impacts of climate change, in theory, we should await the worst impacts on climate change before we make the decisions. We don't have that yet. We have forecasts, we have predictions, but we don't have the evidence in the bag yet. And the paradox is that if you wait for the evidence, the very thing that you wanted to make a decision about could be not timely anymore because once you have the evidence, the decision becomes outdated. Should we build, I don't know, should we build a seawall in Florida because the the sea will come up? And then somebody can say, you know, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter, you know, good faith, bad faith. They can say, well, I don't have the evidence that we need it. By the time you have the evidence, you don't need it anymore because it's too it's too late. And so that is just one example where the decision is not timely anymore because by the time evidence comes in, it's too late. The other is uh, the notion that with complexity, there is just so much that we don't know. And um, we, you will not know until you have to make a decision. And that is one of the paradoxes. That is one of the paradoxes there. Uh, and to me, in complexity and uncertainty, the world is becoming more and more unknown to a point where you will not know, and you have to make decisions about a future state of the world that you don't know. And I guess we only have to focus on, uh, I don't know, precautionary principles, uh, making decisions in the face of irreducible uncertainty. Um, there is a book, Radical Uncertainty, that Basically, they call it that way. They call it radical uncertainty because it's an uncertainty that even if you had more information, you cannot uh, wish it away. The information, the, the the uncertainty will not go away. Yeah. So you can make decisions on the base of incomplete evidence because you have to accept that the in- evidence is incomplete. You can use some like first principles kind of thinking, 
And at the same time, accepting irreducible uncertainty, make decisions. The normative part of evidence decision-making is something that needs to be co-created with others, people who are affected by these decisions. By normative, I mean, you know, value judgments, you know, like, do you want an inequality that is, I don't know, this kind of Gini coefficient, or do you want less inequality? Do you want more? But it's not something that can be decided by an expert alone. We've seen that expertise has gotten some backlash in COVID crisis, in the economy, in um, the financial crisis. And I really believe that expertise is extremely valuable, but at the same time, we should not relegate some decisions to experts alone on the assumption that experts will also make value judgments for us, uh, because that can create its own problems. And also it can create a form of disaffection towards um, the scientific way of knowing the world. Yeah. and, and, and mm-hmm. Sorry, it's a bit jumbled together. It's not as crisp and clear as I would prefer to, but these are some initial thoughts I for really now. I really like it though, because it's it, then what you're saying with regards to the experts, which has been a topic that comes back. Um, it's almost like you would mm-hmm. want to put them in a, Nora Bateson would call a warm data lab. We would put them, you need to put them in conversation with one another. And then if you put, you know, Absolutely. An like an epidemiologist together with, a, a, you know, a psychologist and together with, you know, if you would have had more people around the table mm-hmm. and not just the public health people that are tasked with Absolutely. keeping people alive, that have a very specific objective, then you're going to start to see the, mm-hmm. the spider di- diagram develop. And you're going to have to have, you know, you're, you're going to get completely different solutions maybe on the table than if you're stuck between, you know, make people, let people live or let people die. Like in, from the virus particularly. Like Absolutely. The, the question that we're asking is so important. I know I was watching um, Nora Bates and Daniel Schmachtenberger's conversation uh, from a few weeks back. Um, they were talking about sort of what is the question that you're doing? Like when you're parenting, are you trying to get your kid through second or to, through fifth grade? Or are you trying to get your kid mm-hmm. to live, you know, to, to learn how to learn and to live happily, to be successful in life? Like mm-hmm. those are, they relate to each other very much, those two questions, mm-hmm. but they have completely different implications for how you behave when you disagree with the particular teaching policies that are done in second grade and like what you make your kid do, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you're looking at the longer perspective, the shorter perspective, that there's there's always like a lateral move that you aren't making that you could be making in a way. And, and I'm hearing you bring that in as well. It, it comes alive as a part of the, this evidence-based decision-making and also to just be aware that the paradox is there. That was the thing that I hadn't really seen. Yeah, and I, absolutely. And I find this really beautiful what you say about the, uh, you know, the way you, for example, you would raise a child, you would parent a child because to me that is something about um, the ways in which you treat expertise. I know you didn't mention that in relation to experts, but to me, the ways in which you can treat experts is actually empowering the public and not putting them on a pedestal at all, but actually it's giving them more power and not less power by saying, well, if the ex- if we value, truly value expertise, uh, also we empower the public to make informed decisions themselves and actually give more responsibility to people because I think that there has been a, um, I don't know if it's a word in English, but there has been a form of infantilization of the public when you give everything to the experts and say, oh, can you write a climate report for us? And can you write recommendations for us? And can you write, I don't know, a policy on public health? Where in reality, some of these things also need to be uh, in the hands of people who will be affected by the decisions themselves. And I think to that, I think we have to redesign democracy, but I don't know if that's something that we can do in an hour <laughs> podcast, but I think that there is a, there is a really a need to redesign the, the, the forms of public engagement. And that's been a beef that I've had with the, the quality of discourse. I'm originally Italian and it's a beef that I've had with the quality of public discourse in Italy. I'm not saying, you know, like I, I agree with this person. I disagree with this person. I, I clearly have strong opinions, but to me, it's something more. It's something meta and it's something around from the quality of this public conversation comes this quality of politics, of policies and politics. And if we don't elevate the quality of the discourse, whether it's left or right or moderates or centrist, like it doesn't matter. Like the quality of the conversation 
will produce certain quality of politics. And, you know, we talked about the complexity of the problems that we have today. To me, it seems unlikely that the, the solutions will be up to par with the, the nature of the problems that we have. And that's concerning me. But on the positive side, if we elevate the quality of the conversation, there is so much more that we could do. And that would be fun. Uh, how to do that? Well, I guess that there is a lot of experimentation that we need to do with public engagement with um, citizens, for example. What would it look like to facilitate democratic conversations? I know that there are people who are doing a wonderful job on that already, and they are innovating around the edges of uh, uh, civic participation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a tricky one. But I mean, if we want to solve uh, solve uh, democratic engagement, then I, I'm sure I can find 90 minutes to... <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, I'm wondering if this is a good pause point because I, I mean, there's so many threads that are still alive, and I think we could like literally. Mm -hmm. It feels like we could talk for the rest of the afternoon and and just keep going. Like, and and yet, there's like this has been so rich because there's so much here. I mean, it's like it's, it's like there's a loop that we've made, which has been I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very hard always to point to specific things, but it's like, it's really interesting how this kind of comes around. And, and I think in a way we've talked very specifically mm -hmm. about sustainability and the challenges that we are facing and the world that we live in and, mm -hmm. and you know, the, the nature of the wicked uh, environment that we, are, that we are in and also how we yeah. can start um, kind of helping each other see more. And, and you know, and and yeah. then also what you were, what came to me when you're speaking about democracy is like, what if we would take the other, the other path, so to say. I mean, and the other path for me would be to say, what if we define those minimal principles, uh, like yeah, the, minimal the minimal specifications, specifications for, for our, for people our to, public, you know, mm -hmm. dialogue for how we talk to each other, like to become human again with each other yeah. instead of just opinions that are walking around with, in, in represented by bodies you know yeah and that's another one that i would have a lot of energy to to talk about because that's also something that is in itself uh promising and and could be problematic i remember we talked about this in our earlier conversation amit like do people need to change I and mean, do people need are we inviting people to change who they are or how they approach some things as a way to solve or make progress on some of the fundamental challenges that we have. Because I remember that we both had like opinions for and opinions against, and that's a contentious one as well. Or do you redesign some structures that facilitate that happening without forcing people to change? And that's one of the 20 things on which I haven't made up my mind over the last 15 years. So just to highlight some of the paradoxes in which we're swimming. Yeah. And just by looking at the paradoxes, you get a feeling. Even if you can't, art, like you, you mm -hmm. get a feeling for what is most right in a particular moment, and in another moment it will be different. So, if you, yeah, yeah, just by holding the paradox up and and taking a look at it or feeling into it, I mean, the, something shifts, mm -hmm. like something else becomes possible. That's at least my experience. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is, uh, um, help me out if I'm if I if I'm hearing it right, but it, I think it's. I believe it's something that Keegan would call it, like make it an object of observation. Can you just hold it up and, as, a, as a mirror yeah. and say, what is this thing and what do we do about it? But the moment you make it object, I, I, I hear Keegan argue that the moment you make it object, then you get more options on, about how do you yeah, work in with a way. it. And, and my, yes, I think that's a good method. And it's very close to this sort of reductionist um, picking apart deconstructive methodology that we're and so oh, I see. to me there's also this the, it needs to be backed up or followed by the reintegration like if you you need to find a good way to try it on if you will like see how it fits in your life because mm -hmm. otherwise you are to me otherwise you mm -hmm. are in the business of changing other people because then you're dealing in terms of like in things like it would be good if and I'm only gonna and um, as soon as we do this then you know, like there are, there are all these things that are traps to actually enacting the change, but, but like, unless mm -hmm. it fits in your entire system, it's going to be very difficult to, 
So you're going to have to try it on and see what other things have to change, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, there's, there's the, it's good to look at it in the objectified way to make that mm-hmm. sort of subject object shift. But then what I'm lacking a little bit in the, in the Keegan framework and in some others, like the object subject shift, like when you reintegrate it, like when, as you. So how do you yeah. make it subject again? How do you right. reabsorb it into your own? lenses through yeah. which you look at and the then world. what happens and then observe what you were saying you know That's what you were saying before like and, and observe how the whole thing changes as you put the puzzle piece back mm. and it's not you know dark brown it's now bright pink how does the whole puzzle change like because mm-hmm. it does right yeah ah. i'm curious as to how you do that i have no idea i'm curious <laughs> that... okay i'm just curious yeah good yeah. So Marco, if people want to find you online, uh, why should they find you and where can they find you? Um, I'm on Twitter, but I'm keeping an eye on uh, will Twitter change substantially over the next months? And uh, so I'm on Twitter at Eche Marco and I'm on LinkedIn, Marco Valente, uh, Cultivating Leadership. Uh, Most of my blogs I write on LinkedIn and uh, a lot of uh, random miscellaneous uh, thoughts I write on on Twitter, including some actually, to be fair, including some um, book recommendations, which probably my followers find the most helpful thing because I I like to uh, curate some um, book reading kind of recommendations. So complexity, adult development, and uh, other adjacent uh, topics. Beautiful. I'll post the links as well in the show notes. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. It's been a delight and talk soon.